You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, Cartels, presented by Hakeem Alibokis Alexander on Spreaker Social Podcasting, Wisdom Social Audio Inc., and Colin social podcasting presented for world reading club in association with unique delivery this edition's reading focus comes both to us from the little book of economics in the section called meetings of merchants and in conspiracies to raise prices Cartels and Collusion. That's the first part of this. And the second part comes from How Money Works. And it's going to be the most boring part of it, called Derivatives. I previously read on Wisdom and Spreaker um, part two of a section in Wealth of Nations that was very enlightening. And I think that section might have actually been a very heavily influential on Marx and Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, because it was talking a lot about some very interesting things about uh, about wages and profits and things like that. That I'll have to look, I'll have to, to spy into um, wealth of uh, the Communist Manifesto a little bit more deeply. Also, a nice, beautiful copy of it here. Very nice. Uh, so, let's get right into this little book of economics. Oh, hello, Zach. How do you do, sir? Zach, over here on Colin. And uh, we're going to start with uh, the little book of economics. Um, meetings of merchants end in conspiracies to raise prices, cartels, and collusion. The focus in context here are markets and firms. The key thinker, once again, uh, Adam Smith. Adam Smith. And that's the author of Wealth of Nations. I uh, just read earlier on Spreaker and uh, Wilson. So Adam Smith, uh, 1723 to 1790 is his lifespan. And before him, in the 1290s, we have uh, Wenceslas II, Duke of Bohemia introduces laws to prevent metal ore traders from colluding to raise prices. The 1590s, traders from the Netherlands collaborate in a cartel with a monopoly of the spice trade in the East Indies. It's interesting because in Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, he was talking about uh, monopolies. And um, as a matter of fact, the section that I had just finished reading, uh, part two, was... Um, called Inequalities Occasioned by the Policy of Europe. And um, that was part of the section chapter in Chapter 10 called Of Wages and Profit in the Different Employments of Labor and Stocks. Part 1 was Inequalities Arising from the Nature of the Employments Themselves. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was really getting down on some really interesting things, which were, I mean... He, he had a lot to say that I'm going to have to give um, some more uh, attention to because it was actually a really great uh, reading in that book. So, all right, continuing here, we got uh, Adam Smith. Okay, so after Adam Smith, 
Um, we have in, the, in 1838, French economist Augustin Cournot describes competition in oligopolies. In uh, 1890, the first antitrust law is passed in the U.S. And in 1964, U.S. economist George Stigler publishes a theory of oligopoly, examining the problems of maintaining successful cartels. All right. Competition is key to the efficient working of free markets. The presence of several producers in a market drives production and keeps prices down as each competes to attract customers. Makes sense. If there is only a single supplier, a monopoly, it can choose to restrict its output and chain and charge higher prices. Between these two extremes sits the oligopoly, where a few suppliers, sometimes only two or three, dominate the market for a particular product. Competition between producers in an oligopoly would clearly be in the interest of the consumer, but there is an alternative for the producers that may be more beneficial to their profit levels, cooperation. If they choose this route and can agree not to undercut one another, they can act collectively like a monopoly and dictate the terms of the market to their own benefit. Yeah. Forming cartels. This sort of cooperation between firms is known by economists as collusion. Yeah, it's collusion, people. This sort of cooperation between firms is known by economists as collusion. The price fixing that results makes markets less efficient. Scottish economist Adam Smith recognized the importance of self-interest in free markets, but was suspicious enough of the motives of suppliers to warn, quote, people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in a conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. That's exactly what I was reading in that section today. Now, these books are kind of going hand in hand together. I wonder if this is the book, the little book of economics and how many works are templated on uh, the wealth of nations. It certainly seems like it. As I go section by section, they're running hand in hand here. Because that quote I remember stuck out to me, that the people of the same trade seldom meet together, even for merriment and diversion. But the conversation ends in conspiracy against the public or in some contrivance to raise prices. All right. Collaborations between producers have existed for as long as there have been markets, and businesses in many areas of commerce have formed associations to their mutual benefit. In the U.S. in the 19th century, these restrictive or monopolistic practices were known as trusts, but the word cartel is now used to describe such collaborations which operate on a national or international level. The word has gained a negative connotation despite being a notable feature of the German and U.S. economies in the 1920s and 1930s. In the 20th century, the U.S. and the European Union, EU, used legislation to discourage collusion. However, cartels among producers remain a feature of market economies. 
Collaborations might be a simple agreement between two firms, such as when Unilever and Procter & Gamble colluded to fix the price of laundry detergent in Europe in 2011. Or they can take the form of an international trade association, such as the International Air Transport Association, IATA. The IATA's original function was to set prices for fares, which led to accusations of collusion but it still exists as a representative organization for the airline industry. Cartels can even be formed through cooperation between governments of countries producing a particular commodity, as happened in the case of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, which was founded in 1960 to coordinate oil prices among member countries. Hmm. So cartels can even be formed through cooperation between governments of countries producing a particular commodity. All right. Makes sense. Now, let's get this little side note here. It has British Airways was fined $546 million for collusion in 2011 after Virgin Atlantic admitted that the two companies had met six times to discuss proposed price rises. Wow. That's a price to pay right there, huh? Challenges for cartels. I remember the word cartel actually is not a bad one, right? It's, as it said earlier, it says uh, um, the word cartel is now used to describe such collaborations which operate on a national or international level. The word has gained a negative connotation despite being a notable feature of the German and U.S. economies in the 1920s and 1930s. And even here they're depicting cartels as, um, as legitimate organizations, right? Challenges for cartels. However, there are problems in setting up and sustaining a cartel, which focus around prices and trust between members. Participants in a cartel cannot simply fix prices. They also have to agree on output quotas to maintain those prices and, of course, the share of the profits. The fewer the members of a cartel, the easier these negotiations are. Cartels are more robust when there are small when there are a small number of firms accounting for most of the supply. The second problem is ensuring that members of a cartel abide by the rules. Producers are attracted to collusion by the prospect of higher prices, but this self-interest is also the weakness of the arrangement. Individual individual members of a cartel may be tempted to cheat by overproducing and undercutting their collaborate their collaborators. Yeah, of course, cheating and undercutting their collaborators. In effect, this is a version of the prisoner's dilemma, in which two prisoners can each choose either to remain silent or confess. If both remain silent or confess, they will receive life sentences. However, if only one confesses, he will receive immunity while his partner in crime will get a heavy sentence. The best strategy for each of them is to remain silent. This incurs the shortest jail time. But the temptation is to opt for immunity and confess in the hope that the other does not. The strategies that apply here are equally applicable to cartels, where the rewards for all the players are greater if they collaborate than if they compete but are greatest for any one player who breaks the agreement, which causes the others to suffer as a consequence. In practice, this is what tends to happen with a 
cart within a cartel, particularly when the quotas are unequally divided. When the uh, the twelve members of OPEC, for example, meet regularly to discuss. Oh, oh sorry, excuse me. For example, the twelve members of OPEC, for example, meet regularly to agree on output and prices, but these are seldom adhered to. The smaller less wealthy members see the chance of gaining some extra profit and exceed their output quotas, introducing an element of competitiveness and weakening the power of the cartel as a whole. It only takes one cheat to undermine the operation of a cartel, and the more members in the cartel, the greater the danger of the rules being broken. And we got a nice, for those on uh, Colin, our little graph here. We got the we got a little agreement here, but these guys <laughs> with cowboy hats over that that bucket of oil, shaking hands. The barrels got oil leaking all over the ground, and a, a dollar sign on them. All right, so uh, cartels can arrange price fixing by operating as a virtual monopoly. If no one can offer the consumer a lower price. The one price offered can be much higher than the production cost, generating high profits for the cartel. And then you can see the, the guy there standing by his car with a gas can. Look at him, he's imagining the cartels. <laughs> oh boy, all right. So continuing here, enforcing agreements. Very often, one of a cartel's members, the most powerful in terms of production, emerges as an enforcer. When the efficacy of OPEC becomes threatened, for instance, by countries such as Angola overproducing to increase its profits, Saudi Arabia, the largest member of the cartel, can take action to stop this. As the largest producer with the lowest production costs, it can afford to increase production and lower prices to a level that will punish or may even bankrupt the smaller countries while only lowering its own profits in the short term. However, in many cases, the temptation to cheat and the reluctance of the enforcer to reduce its profits eventually lead to the breakup of cartels. The difficulty in forming and maintaining cartels means that these conspiracies are less common than Adam Smith might have expected. In the 1960s, U.S. economist George Stigler showed that the natural suspicion of competitors acts against collusion in a cartel and that cartels are less likely to occur as more firms enter a market. As a result, even in industries where there are only a few large producers, such as for video game consoles and smartphones, the preference is generally for competition rather than cooperation. Nevertheless, the few cartels that do exist pose enough of a threat to the market for governments to feel the need to intervene. Public pressure from consumers opposed to price fixing drove the move to uh, drove the move to antitrust legislation uh, during the 20th century, outlawing cartels in most countries. Because of the difficulty of proving collusion, many of these laws offer immunity to the first member of a cartel to confess, just as in the prisoner's dilemma, offering yet another incentive to break up the cartel. This tactic was notably successful recently when Virgin Atlantic Airlines, worried by an investigation into price fixing of Atlantic flights, 
confessed its collusion with British Airways, who were heavily fined. Well, that did happen, didn't it? Huh. Government approval. Some libertarian economists, such as Stigler, are skeptical of the need for such laws, given the instability of cartels. Governments are often ambiguous about cartels, seeing some forms of cooperation as potentially desirable. For example, while the IATA's price-setting policy was considered collusion, right, so the IATA, remember, it's the uh, International Air Transport Association. So while the, for example, while the IATA's price-setting policy was considered collusion, OPEC has sometimes been seen in a more benign light as a trade bloc whose policies lead to stability. The same argument has been put forward in defense of public cartels in certain industries, such as oil or steel, in countries during times of depression. When regulated by governments, cooperation between producers can stabilize production and prices, protect the consumer and smaller producers, and make the industry as a whole more competitive internationally. Public cartels such as these were common in both Europe and the U.S. during the 1920s and 1930s, but mostly disappeared after World War II. National cartels are still a feature of the Japanese economy. And then we have a little uh, focus here on antitrust laws, and it has a cute little, well, not really cute, uh, a spider with some dude's head on it. It looks like the Monopoly guy's face. Or, or some old dude on the spider web uh, Senate committee room, and there's flies all over it stuck in the web. All right, antitrust laws. Cartels, like monopolies, are generally seen as harmful to the efficiency of free markets and a threat to overall economic well-being. Most governments have attempted to prevent this kind of collusion by legislation in the form of antitrust or competition laws. Oh, right, because the word, because a trust is also another word for the cartels, right? So they were called trusts and also cartels, right? So um, the first such intervention was in the U.S. in 1890, when the Sherman Act outlawed every contract or conspiracy that restrained interstate or foreign trade. This was followed by further antitrust laws, including the Clayton Act in 1914, which prohibited local price cutting to freeze out competition. Economists have tended to be skeptical about antitrust legislation, which is, in any case, often difficult to enforce. They point out that cooperation does not always lead to collusive practices, such as price fixing and bid rigging. And many believe that most trust-busting legislation has been motivated by political pressure rather than economic analysis. Oh, and that little spider thing was there. This 1906 cover of a political paper lampoons U.S. politician Nelson Aldrich for building a web of tariffs to protect U.S. goods from foreign competition and raise local prices. So, so I guess that's who that guy is, Nelson Aldrich, in the picture there. All right, so that ends that section of the little book of economics. And uh, I've got coming up here a little bit, a very short two-page reading that would be very quick from what I've left as the most boring part of this here. Um, and it is from 
how money works. Once again, how money works. And this section is about derivatives. How wonderful. I may be coming back later to do some work on uh, the BRICS Summit, but we'll, we'll see, because I want to make it to another location soon. A, a new bookstore that I was turned on to called Second and Charles. That looks very, very cool. So here we go. Deri derivatives. Derivatives. A type of financial instrument. The value of derivatives is based on the price of an underlying asset or index. They are commonly used by investors to spread risk and or to speculate. Hmm. How it works. Investors may buy derivatives in order to produce the amount of volatility in their portfolios or to reduce, I said produce. Investors may buy derivatives in order to reduce the amount of volatility in their portfolios. Since they, uh, since they can agree on a price for a deal in the present that will, in effect, happen in the future, or to try to increase their gains through speculation. Derivatives can enable an investor to gain exposure to a market via a smaller outlay than if they bought the actual underlying asset. The most common and the most common are futures and options, leveraged products in which the investor puts down a small proportion of the value of the underlying asset and hopes to gain by a future rise in the value of that asset. And that uh, we have derivatives for hedging. Companies use derivatives to protect against cost fluctuations by fixing a price for a future deal in advance. By setting costs in this way, buyers gain protection known as a hedge against unexpected rises or falls in, for example, the foreign exchange market, interest rates, or the value of the commodity or product they are buying. Um, derivatives. Let's see, we have an example here of, of an airline company. Now, interestingly enough, because we just talked about uh, collusion and cartels in airline companies amongst others in the previous reading of the Little Book of Economics. Lots of coincidences here. All right, so we have a U.S., we have an airline company, and it's measured here in time of months, and it says a U.S.-based airline company reviews its stock levels and decides that it would need to buy jet fuel for its fleet of planes in three months' time. To protect itself from future price increases, it can buy fuel at today's prices for delivery and payment at a future date, known as a forward transaction. If the price of fuel then falls, instead of rising, however, the company will be locked into paying a higher price. That's not bad. They got it at a price that they wanted to begin with. That doesn't seem like such a bad thing. An investor notices a company's share price going up and buys an option on the shares, a right to buy shares with a future date. If share prices do rise, the investor can profit by buying at the fixed option price and selling at the current higher price. If share prices fall, the investor can sell the option or let it lapse, losing a fraction of the value of the asset itself. Hmm. All right, derivatives for speculation. Investors may buy or sell an asset in the hope of generating a profit from the asset's price fluctuations. Usually, this is done on a short-term basis in assets that are liquid or easily traded. Warning. There's a warning section here. It says, referred to as, I, what? Just 
talking about this. Yes, Warren Buffett said it. All they don't have his name in here. Referred to as financial weapons of mass destruction, derivatives can be volatile. Warren Buffett was the one that said that, as pointed out in Robert T. Kiyosaki's book, um, The Capitalist Manifesto. Referred to as financial weapons of mass destruction, derivatives can be volatile. Relying on debt leverage, they use complex mathematical models and not all traders clearly understand the risks they are taking. They can suffer large and catastrophic losses as a result. $6.2 billion was lost on derivative trading by J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, but they don't say when. Usually there's a year on this subject. Wow, $6.2 billion was lost on derivative trading by J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. But yeah, financial weapons of mass destruction, that's what they were called by Warren Buffett, because even 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 after he said that, he still um, blessed uh, through his company Moody's subprime mortgages as being prime or A plus, and that's what in part led to the 2008 uh, housing bubble collapse, supposedly. Well, that is it. The little book of economics and how money works. And you've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, WAR, or Cartels, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker, and Colin, Social Podcasting, and Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., presented for World Reading Club in association with Unequilibrium.